As we come this morning to talk about uh, second series of worship and revelation, we're going to be looking specifically at the scenes of worship. But we're not going to so much investigate all the scenes to talk about the background and how they would have been heard as people read um, the revelation of John in the first century. Now, there are seven scenes of worship in Revelation. And I should also remind people that um, if you want to talk about this, um, engage in a bit more study in Revelation, so there's four um, study groups that are going to be meeting over the next um, five. The first is this afternoon, and some of the details are on your note sheet, uh, 3.35 at our house. Kids are welcome if you want to have kids to make a play while the adults engage. So the seven scenes of worship, I'll put these slides up onto the Facebook group. So I encourage you uh, another time to look at all these different passages. Because each passage of worship that happens in the book of Revelation says something about who God is and the preparing passages. But if you notice, if you read through the book of Revelation, all the action, if you want to put it that way, starts in worship. Nothing happens on earth if first something is said in Revelation. And in fact, every dramatic moment that really happens on earth is punctuated by worship in heaven. So it's showing a God who is Lord of history. It's not so much a God who is a puppeteer controlling history. Humans in the book of Revelation do what they want, they have free will. But it clearly shows that God is Lord of history, and everything starts from a passage in worship and then it flows on. Earth. Ultimately, the worship scenes in Revelation show a particular truth. There's only one power in the universe worthy of worship in the world, God. And every other power is pretended. And that might seem an obvious thing, but it could get into it. It's more uh, complicated than that in terms of how that would be heard. Now, so what I'm going to try to do for this next part is paint a picture of life in the first century and what it was like. So you have to understand, if you were in the first century, the Roman Empire was all powerful. It had conquered the known world. It could not escape the legions. It was wealthy beyond imagining and had technological marvels Roman roads and aqueducts. The world was in awe of Rome, its armies, and its conquest and its technology. And part of that is Rome developed this mythology. Now, let me explain to you what mythology means. We think mythology means just something that's not true. But mythology is a particular word which means. Um, collection of stories talking about how we got these things. A collection of stories explaining who we are and where we belong in the world. But it's also a set of beliefs that get associated with an event, an individual, an institution. And we'll talk a bit more about that. Go into that a little more moment. So, under Julius Caesar, the Roman legions had conquered. And up until that point, Rome had been a republic. Like that. So people would vote it. But under Julius Caesar, it became an empire, where he became the Caesar the Lord. There was a bit of instability after he was murdered. 
then Rome went through this golden period under Augustus, who unified the empire and really set the conquest of Rome and dealt with any uprisings. And Rome saw the age of Augustus as entering into the golden age of Roman history, which then the other Caesars continued on. And you have this mythology, these stories, and this belief associated with Rome and its place in the world. So what I'm going to read to you comes from what's called the Divine Acts of Augustus. So right away you should be keyed into how the Romans taught themselves, the Divine Acts of Augustus. And when we talk about that, we're going to talk about how the Romans saw their emperors as gods. It's not the same way that we see God as like incarnate in Jesus, but now that they had the of Zeus and Apollo, they saw their, their emperors almost as like uh, a minor version of one of those gods. A powerful being who was blessed by supernatural powers. This is written in the Divine Acts of Augustus uh, a little after he was It seemed good to the Greeks of Asia in the opinion of the high priest of Apollos that since Providence, this is what the high priest said, has what providence is the power of the universe, has ordered all things, and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit, benefit him on sending him as a saviour, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. We start to hear this language about how they view their emperor, Augustus. And since he sees a wide appearance, excel even our anticipation, surpassing all previous benefactors, not even leaving to austerity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of good news for the world that came by reason of you see the story that they're telling about the power of Augustus, that he is a saviour, that through him there will be peace. And indeed, his coming is good news. And use that word in Greek evangelium. Of course, if you go to the United Gospels, Mark 1 1. Does it start the very first passage? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. We use that exact same word. It's almost a quote in this beginning of the evangelical but now instead of Augustus, it's who? Jesus. So what are they saying then? Augustus is the message. Jesus is. You see how the setting of early Christianity is setting itself up against Rome. And this what it says. The Romans had what was called, because they had become so powerful, their conquered states wanted to show their loyalty to Rome and to get their blessings. They had what was called this um, imperial cult. And the Romans, or this in like, places like Ephesus, they would build temples and have a priest to the empire and to Caesar. And honouring the emperor and showing your faith in the emperor, empire were key parts of showing loyalty and being a good citizen. So you had to put your faith in empire and Caesar. And in fact, 
if you were ordered and participate in doing so to show your loyalty, and you refused to do so, it was punishable by death. If you did not, when ordered by the Romans, show your loyalty to the empire, you could be killed. It didn't happen all the time, but it was So this is a model showing in heard one of the um, cities that Revelation is addressed to, the imperial cult, and the temple and what it looked like. So, in the seven places that Revelation is written to, Ephesus, Smyrna, Oakland, Boeotia, Sars, Philadelphia, Laodicea, we see that almost all of them had the three things, an imperial temple, an imperial altar, and an imperial priest. They were all sites that were majoring into and had bought into the cult of emperor worship, <laughs> giving glory to the Roman Empire, showed their loyalty that they might be blessed by Caesar and by Rome. If you think this is all extremes, this state religion of people in the state providing work and providing places for people to show their loyalty and good citizenship, well, in a form, it still happens today, but nothing like back then. If you think about how we see some of our state, our Anzac, in fact, even the architecture, Greek columns are similar to the temples, places where as citizens, we are called to come and to give honour and to give glory. And it's part of a strange mythology, isn't it? That through the Anzacs, we became a nation in their sacrifice. Australia was, was kept free, and through them, we became a nation. That's part of Australian mythology. And the state invests in providing places to remember that, and then inviting us to celebrate it. So, if you imagine that uh, on steroids, that is what the Romans did. They had temples. They had public holidays. They had ceremonies. Were they like Anzac? They would invite everyone to participate in parades, feasts, and all sort of stuff into proclaiming the myth of the goodness of Rome and what it was. And to not participate, to say, you were destroyed. Like if we can stand against Antioch, we would say, why Just stand against those imperial cults in the same way we've been viewed the same way. Okay, so the mythology of Rome. Rome had this belief and it proclaimed it on its writings, its temples, and its feasts, and what its historians said, that it was an empire. That it alone had power. It was an empire of the world. And because of its empire, it brought peace and salvation to the world. And that it would last for eternity. I'm going to look at some of those things. This is also. So, this is written on one of those temples um, in one of the cities that um, John wrote his letters to. And it says, across the inscription of the temple, the achievement of the God Augustus, by which he subjected the whole earth. To the Imperium of the Roman people. The Imperium is the word for empire. So to Augustus, God, who is subjected, and now the earth is under the empire of Rome. We read in Revelation. Seven angels blew his trumpet, and the loud voices 
the end of time. The Basilia of the world has become the Basilia of our Lord and of his Messiah. He will have the Basilia ever and ever. And that word Basilia is Greek, the same word empire, which is translated in Latin as imperial. So, what it's saying is the empire of this world has become the empire of our Lord and he will have rule over it. In contrast to the whole earth is under the empire of the Roman people. See, there was a direct um, confrontation with the following of Rome. Rome says the world is under the empire of Rome. Revelation says the world is under the empire of the Lord and his Messiah, and he And this is from um, Pliny the Elder, another quote. And you say that, thank you, how these guys describe themselves and how they saw themselves. The boundless grandeur of a Roman peace which displays internal not meant only with the different Atlantic tribes, but also the mountains and peaks soaring into the clouds of offspring and also their friends. So what he's saying is the Roman peace is not only for men, but for the mountains and the sea and the and everyone benefits the children in the plants, all benefiting from the Roman peace. May this gifts of the God of last, I pray, and so truly they seem to have given to the human race the Romans, as it were, second son. Hear this language? We have brought this. We are like the second son to the world. We are the ones who bring peace and salvation. In contrast, as we'll get into in the fourth one, um, we look at the, the stories of Revelation around 17 and 19, the beast and the in Babylon. Revelation shows that not only is Roman not bring peace, but is in fact the shadow of that it claims that it is the bringer of peace, but in fact it is the bringer of destruction and blood and suffering. So we have this passage in Roman, uh, in Revelation chapter 7, where it talks about the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the innocent, killed under the Roman rule, who are under the altar. And God says to them, they're saying, Come on. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worshiping day and night within his temple. The one who is seen on the throne will shelter. Hunger no more, and thirst no more. Sun will not strike for any scorching heat. The Lamb at the centre of the throne will be the shelter, and He will guide them to springs of water and life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So God is the one who brings true, true salvation. And in fact, you see that particularly in Revelation 21. New heaven and a new earth, that beautiful, beautiful crying, dying, pain, suffering. Only God brings peace. So Revelation shows that the crime is not bringing peace in the world. In fact, it's generous. And the last thing that the crime looks at is the body. 
and in this question, Rome is the embodiment of cosmic order on earth. Rome was the eternal city, the eternal empire. They had this mythology that Rome was set up by the cosmos. It was the power of the universe, and it lasts forever. In contrast, we worship in Revelation, we had I am the Alpha and the Omega, Lord, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty, the beginning and the end. Here clearly, God says, only I can return. I who was, I who am, and I who is to come, the Almighty. And of interest, um, Yahweh, the word that in Hebrew is the tetragram, uh, Y-H-W-H, in the Greek Old Testament, is often sometimes translated as, as uh, Iona, Alpha, and Omega, the name of God. And if you know the name of God from Exodus, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And God is the truth. So, what else so you can see what I said this thing, where in the first century, people, the citizens of those cities would have heard all this about Rome as the divine power, about the God of justice, about Rome bringing peace, about Rome bringing salvation, and they were compelled to participate in the cult of worshipping and giving their loyalty to empire and to Rome as the bringers of peace and salvation. Of course, this was a problem. Paul says, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. And in this passage, Paul is talking about essentially a baptism where publicly you state, Jesus is Lord. And confess with your lips. And then Paul says, further on, I feel to them, brothers and sisters, by the message that I present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The test of Roman you will want Sean to believe to have loyalty and faith. You're supposed to burn incense to Caesar. Tossing a pinch, a pinch of incense into the fire and saying, Caesar is Lord. That's how you show you were a world citizen. Go to the temple, take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. And all the revelation saying, Dear Christian, you can stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, guess who's not? Caesar. Which meant you were not in favor of the empire. Which meant that you could potentially be punished for death. So, worship in Revelation sets up this dramatic confrontation between God and the mythology of life. And worship in Revelation asks the question. Who will we put our faith, our loyalty to? The empire of this world or the empire of the world? 
the church of the first century, Revelation worship shows this point. Even though they were small and tiny and vulnerable, and even though Rome is all powerful and rich and wealthy and has believers, even though they might be persecuted, even though they might suffer, when they worship, when they gather together, they declare, along with all the heavenly powers, that Jesus is Lord, and only God has proved it, and God will bring Rome to account for its lives. So you can see, worship in Revelation is like almost a contest. This is what heaven says, this is what Rome says, and the empire. We will win. And if we read through the story of Revelation, it's clear. God wins and has won. When Jesus rose from the dead, God already has victory. And so, all the hope of the empire is but a myth and a lie. Instead, put your faith in the Christ, in God. And so, we finish up quickly. He invites us to ask the question who can we worship with our bodies, our minds, our passions, our lives? Who do we believe can actually bring peace and happiness to our life? The economy and our Western lifestyle? Or God? Who will we put our trust in? The empire of this world? Or the empire of our world? When we worship, we're invited to declare only God can do this. Only God can do so. Only God can bring happiness. Every other thing that God asks you for your loyalty and your faith and your worship is a false pretender. So put that trust in God. Running a bit late, so I might pray and we won't just go straight here rather than do much of 